Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Hi, everyone. Steve here. I am finally doing something I always said I would do, but honestly never actually thought I'd get around to doing it. You remember when you were in high school or college and your English teacher gave you a book to read and it wasn't something fun like Hardy Boys or Tom Swift or Doc Savage. I know I'm showing my age here or Little House on the Prairie. No, it was something boring by Mark Twain or Charles Dickens or John Steinbeck. And if you were like me, you faked it badly. Or if you were in college, you might have run down to the bookstore to buy the summary of the book to make your fake a bit more real. Either way, it rarely ended well, as we all know. I'm a writer and a storyteller by trade. It's who I am. And because I'm a writer, I'm also an avid reader, and I mean avid. I average about 140 books a year, and because my work as a consulting analyst to the technology industry keeps me trapped on airplanes and in hotel rooms, I read. So a couple of years or so ago, I decided to start mixing the classics into my normal mix of, you know, modern shoot 'em up spy novel mystery kind of stuff, and I started with Arthur Conan Doyle. I have to tell you, though, at first I was kind of dreading it, but once I started reading and allowed myself to slow my mind and my reading cadence to match the pace of 19th century writers, I was hooked with the first book. I blazed through all of them, the entire Sherlock Holmes collection, and then I moved on to Jules Verne and Mark Twain and H.G. Wells. Reading those books as an adult with the benefit of life experiences gives the stories the context that frankly was missing when I was a kid. I, I cannot recommend this to you enough. Now, by the way, before I go on, I have to interrupt myself here to tell you a funny story. As I said, I I read a lot, and I'm a pretty fast reader. I'm not a speed reader by any means, but I'm pretty fast. I, I keep the same reading cadence in every book I read unless I'm reading poetry or a book by someone whose work demands a slower pace. Like some Southern writers, like Rick Bragg, for example, slow me down, but in an enjoyable way. But a typical book of, say, two or 300 pages or so, I usually blast through that in about three days. So about a month ago, I read David Attenborough's First Life, a book about the earliest organisms on the planet. Now, that book took me two weeks to read. And it wasn't because I wasn't regularly reading it or because the book was complicated or because it was poetic. It was because David Attenborough was one of those wonderful writers who writes the way he talks, which means that as I was reading, I was hearing his voice. And my reading began to mimic the pace at which he speaks on all the BBC programs. You know what I'm talking about. These extraordinary creatures, equipped as they are for life in the shallow, salty seas of the Precambrian world, quickly became the hunted as larger, more complex creatures emerged on the scene. I just couldn't do it. I tried to read at a normal clip, and I stumbled, and I tripped over every word I read. It was pretty funny. It was also a great book, and it took me about a month to read it. Anyway, back to the podcast. I just finished The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. I saw the movie as a kid, loved it, but the book was, as usual, quite different from the movie. Like I said, I loved it, and I loved Wells' writing, and it made me want to read more, so I decided to read one of his lesser-known works, his Outline of History, which is a massive book of about 700 pages, and as so often happens when I read something new, I had an epiphany. Let me tell you a bit about Herbert George Wells. During the 1930s, he was one of the most famous people in the world, sort of a rock star of the time. 
He was a novelist and a Hollywood star because several of his movies, The Invisible Man, Things to Come, and The Man Who Could Work Miracles, were made into movies. The time machine didn't hit the screens until quite a bit later. In 1938, Orson Welles caused mass panic when he broadcast a radio show based on Welles' War of the Worlds, which also added to his infamy. He studied biology under T.H. Huxley at the Royal College of Science in the UK. He was a teacher and a science writer before he was a novelist. And Huxley, who was something of a mentor to Wells, was an English biologist who specialized in comparative anatomy and was often called Darwin's bulldog because of his loud support for Darwin's theory of evolution. He's the guy that also came up with the term agnosticism. He described it, he said, in this way. He said, agnosticism, in fact, is not a creed, but a method, the essence of which lies in the rigorous application of a single principle, the fundamental axiom of modern science. In matters of the intellect, follow your reason as far as it will take you without regard to any other consideration. In matters of the intellect, do not pretend that conclusions are certain which are not demonstrated or demonstrable. Pretty prescient words that frankly need to be broadcast loudly today. Ask questions. Don't accept a statement as truth until you know it is. That's frankly precisely why I started this podcast. Anyway, I'm all over the place here, and I apologize for that. The outline of history tells the story of humankind from the earliest days of civilization to the end of World War I, otherwise known as the Great War, and the war to end all wars, if only. From there, I went on to read Work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind, another of his lesser-known works. Both are interesting takes on history and sociology, and somewhere between them, Wells invents the World Wide Web. Honestly, really. Here's how he begins the concept. Before the present writer lie half a dozen books, and there are good indices to three of them. He can pick up any of these six books, refer quickly to a statement, verify a quotation, and go on writing. Close at hand are two encyclopedias, a biographical dictionary, and other books of reference. As a writer, Wells always had reference books on his desk that he referred to regularly. As he developed the concept that he came to call the world brain, He wrote about the early scholars who lived during the time of the Library of Alexandria, the greatest center of learning and scholarship in the world at the time. It operated from the 3rd century BC until 30 AD, an incredibly long time. Scholars could visit the library, but they couldn't take any notes because there was no paper, and there were no indexes or cross-references between documents. So Wells came up with the idea of taking information to the people instead of the other way around and figuring out a way to create detailed cross-references, in effect, search capability, to make the vast stores of the world's knowledge available on demand to everybody. His idea was that the world brain would be a single source of all of the knowledge contained in the world's libraries, museums, and universities. He even came up with a system of classification, an information taxonomy for all of that knowledge. Now, somewhere around 1937, with the war to end all wars now safely in the past, Wells began to realize that the world was once again on the brink of conflict. In his well-read and research-oriented mind, the reason was sheer ignorance. People were actually, and I'm stealing this word from my daughter, not people, but sheeple. And because they were ignorant and chose to do nothing about that, they allowed themselves to be fooled into voting for nationalist or fascist governments. The world brain, he figured, could solve this problem by putting all the world's knowledge into the hands of all of its citizens, thus making them aware of what they should do to preserve the peace that they had fought so hard to achieve less than 20 years ago. 
What he didn't count on, of course, what he was dealing with people. And the fact that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink from the well of intelligence. Nevertheless, he tried to raise the half million pounds a year that he felt would be needed to run the project. He wrote about it, gave lectures, toured the United States, and had dinner with President Roosevelt, during which he discussed the world brain idea. He even met with scientists from Kodak who showed him their newest technology, the technology that ultimately became microfiche. But sadly, he couldn't make it happen, and sure enough, World War II arrived. Here's how he summed up the value of the world brain. The general public has still to realize how much has been done in this field and how many competent and disinterested men and women are giving themselves to this task. The time is close at hand when any student in any part of the world will be able to sit with his projector in his own study at his or her own convenience to examine any book, any document, in an exact replica. In other words, the World Wide Web. Imagine that. World War II caused Wells to fall into a deep depression, during which he wrote The Time Machine, which is, I think, the first post-apocalyptic novel ever written, at least as far as I know. He describes a great green structure up on a hill made of beautiful porcelain, but now falling down in ruins. I suspect he was thinking about the sacking and burning of the Great Library of Alexandria when he wrote that part of the book. Never underestimate the power of great literature, and never underestimate the power of curiosity when it's unleashed on a problem. I'm Steve Shepard for the Natural Curiosity Project. Thank you for listening. The mission of the Natural Curiosity Project is to tell the stories of amazing moments in scientific discovery and accomplishment. If there's a story you'd like to hear or would like to suggest a story or just want to chat about the amazing world of science, please send a message to steve at shepherdcom.com. That's steve at s-h-e-p-a-r-d-c-o-m-m dot com.